series, and I thought about calling it, Knock It Off. (laughs) Since in many ways, that is the theme of the book of Galatians. Stop it! Everyone just stop it! But instead, we're calling it, Gospel Reset. Given all that has happened in our world in the last, really, 18 months between pandemics and riots and elections and uh, all these different things that have happened, I think it's time for all of us to reset, to think about what really matters, to focus our attention for these next 16 weeks or so on the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our all. Jesus is are everything. Jesus is more than enough, and he proves that to us time and time again. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 1, we'll read the greeting, the first five verses. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for its simplicity. We thank you for its profundity. We thank you for the way that it changes our lives. Not simply when we first believe, though that's certainly the case, but every moment of every day. May we be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus as we study this book together this morning. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The other day, I had too many programs that were running on my computer. I had Word and PowerPoint and Excel and Spotify and Outlook and Teams. Does anyone here use Teams? I have never used Teams. Somehow Teams appeared on my computer one day, and now it starts up every time I boot up my computer, so apparently I'm on a team. We never have any games or practices, but I'm hoping that Bill Gates will send me a participation trophy someday, because I am part of his team. I had the internet open. I think I had a game of solitaire operating in the background. I may or may not have been listening to a TV series on Netflix, And so guess what happened? What always happens when you have all these programs operating at the same time, my computer froze. The whole thing locked up. So I did what you do when your computer freezes. I hit control, alternate, delete. That is the universal reset code, unless of course you use a Mac, in which case you just throw your Birkenstock right at the computer. And... uh, Just kidding, Mac people. Some of my best friends are Mac people. They always serve the best trail mix. (laughs) Do you ever feel like you have too many applications going in your computer? Do you ever feel like there are too many programs running in your life? I feel that way all the time. 
Physically, you're trying to eat right and exercise. Emotionally, you're trying to be present and motivated. Relationally, you're trying to connect with your family, your friends. Spiritually, you're trying to stay connected to God. You're trying to stay connected to the church and youth groups and life groups and service projects and ministry opportunities. Sometimes life can be overwhelming. Sometimes we try to do too many things at the same time. Sometimes we lose sight of what really matters. When we do that, we freeze. We lock up. What we need is a gospel reset. We need to hit Control-Alt-Delete, where we just shut everything down, all the noise, all the distractions, all the not-Jesus nonsense that we fill our lives with each and every day, so that we can start over again and focus on what really matters. Now, we all need that as individuals, that's certainly true, but my contention is that we sometimes need that as a whole church. Sometimes whole churches lose sight of what really matters. Sometimes whole churches spend a lot of time and money and emotional energy on things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. As a church, we can get so caught up in the rules and the regulations and our customs and our habits and our preferences that we take, off, take our eyes off of Jesus and the gospel of his grace. It happened to the Galatians, and it can happen right here at Pinewoods Church. The Galatians, were pe- the people who received this letter in the first century, were a relatively young group, a relatively young group of Christian people. Paul, an apostle and church planter, planted several churches in the Roman province of Galatia during his first missionary journey. You can read all about all of Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts. Now, at first, the churches that Paul planted in Galatia were healthy. They were growing. They were thriving. They were reaching people. People were getting baptized. People were getting saved. The Galatians loved Jesus. They loved other people. They understood and believed that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then the Judaizers arrived. The Judaizers were a a group of Jewish Christians who were preaching what I'll call a Jesus plus gospel. They were saying, essentially, that Jesus isn't enough. If you want to be saved, first you have to become Jewish. Men, you have to be circumcised. Women, you better learn how to make some kosher recipes for your family. Churches, we have to sell, celebrate Jewish holidays and Jewish feasts and Jewish festivals. You can't just believe in Jesus. That's too simple. That's too easy. Anybody can do that. They took their eyes off of Jesus. They were in danger of losing their faith. And Paul, who loved them like his own children, was incensed. He was apoplectic. He couldn't believe it. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. 
and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. His point is, if you add anything to the gospel, whatever you add to the gospel ends up subtracting from the gospel so that it's not the gospel any longer. This message was revolutionary in the first century. It was controversial in the first century. It was refreshing in the first century. It was life transforming in the first century. And it still is today. Jesus did it all. We are saved not by our good works, but by grace through faith in Jesus. Every argument that Paul makes in this short little letter to the Galatians, every chapter, every verse, is about the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where do we begin? We begin where Paul began. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. First, we're going to look at the messenger of Galatians, the apostle Paul. And second, we're going to look at the message of Galatians, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first two verses are about the messenger, and the next verses are about the message. In a sense, the whole book of Galatians really could be summarized in the first five verses as Paul takes a traditional, formal greeting that was common in all letters in the first century and transforms it into so much more. How do we regroup? How do we refocus? How do we reset? How do we get less nonsense and more Jesus? Let's take a closer look. We begin with the messenger of Galatians, the Apostle Paul. Who is Paul? In the opening verse of the book of Galatians, Paul, Paul describes himself as an apostle. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man, men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, in the broadest sense of the word, an apostle is someone who is sent. The Greek verb apostello means to send. And so people who were apostles were people who were sent on a special mission by God to plant churches, to make disciples. There's a sense in which all of God's people who have a calling are apostles, small a apostles. But I think that Paul had something more specific in mind when he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. See, over time, that general word, apostle, had taken on a more specific meaning. Apostles, capital A apostles, were specifically eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were people who had been discipled directly by Jesus Christ. The apostles were part of Jesus' inner circle. They're sometimes called the Twelve and so Peter and James and John were capital A apostles. Doubting Thomas was a capital A apostle. When Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, the capital A apostles, the twelve, Jesus' inner circle, 
removed him from his office and appointed a new capital A apostle, a young man named Matthias, who, like the rest of the apostles, had been a witness of the resurrection and had been directly discipled by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, with all that in mind, all those qualifications, does Paul meet the requirements for being a capital A apostle? You see, his critics and his opponents said, no, absolutely not. He was not discipled directly by Jesus Christ. He was not a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He became a Christian much later on. So he's a fraud. He's a fake. He's a pretender. Paul's critics wanted to discredit him as a, mess, as a messenger so that they could discredit his message. In Latin, we call this an ad hominem argument. Ad hominem is Latin for being a jerk on Facebook, essentially. <laughs> it's like somebody makes a point and you're like, oh yeah, you're stupid. You know, that's, n- that's not an argument. They were saying, well, he's not a real apostle. They didn't want to deal with the message that he was saying. Now, Paul responded to his critics by saying, not, you know, saying something else, insulting them in return, but by saying that he really was an apostle, a capital A apostle, because he met Jesus in person on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to Paul, who was then named Saul, and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul repented. He believed in Jesus. He received God's grace. Paul got a new name and a new calling to go along with that new identity. He became an apostle to the Gentiles. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 9. Now, as an apostle, Paul points out that his message did not come, he says, from men nor through men, but from God the Father, through God the Son, and by implication in God the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can trust the messenger, and because you can trust the messenger, you can trust his message. Now, the second question about the Apostle Paul, which is closely related to the first, is who was Paul? Who was Paul before he became a Christian? Who was Paul before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus? Who was Paul before he became an apostle? Well, listen to how Paul describes himself in the letter to the Philippians. Philippians 3, verse 4. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn over to Philippians 3. Look at Philippians 3, verse 4. Paul, describing himself, writes this. Philippians 3, verse 4. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in something, something or someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, something human, Paul says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Before Paul met Jesus, 
before he became an apostle of Jesus Christ. He took pride in his race. He took pride in his family background. He took pride in his work ethic. He took pride in his morality. These are all things that we are tempted also to take pride in, to say that I have value, that I have worth, that I am somebody because I have these earthly things. Then Paul met Jesus and he threw it all away. Paul met Jesus and his life changed forever. Verse 7 but whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see why this is so personal for Paul? Do you see why he is so passionate about this? Paul is not trying to win an abstract theological argument. He's not debating the relative merits of Calvinism versus Arminianism or whether Kirk Cameron is going to get raptured before the rest of us or some other random theological point. He's saying, don't make the same mistake that I made. I used to rely on performance. I used to rely on my credentials. I used to rely on my good deeds. I used to think that I didn't need a Savior. I was wrong. I was dead wrong. I found freedom in Christ. I found joy in Jesus. I found assurance in Jesus. And so did you. I was there when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord. I was there when you were baptized. I was there when you believed that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Don't go back. Don't go back to a Jesus plus something gospel because a Jesus plus something gospel is no gospel at all. It's not good news. In fact, it's not even neutral news. It's bad news. That's Paul. He used to be a Pharisee. He used to be a legalist. He used to be dead in his trespasses and sins. He met Jesus and he became an apostle. He became a herald of God's grace. He found joy, unspeakable, irresistible joy through God's explosive, radical, life-transforming gospel of grace. Now that leads us to the second thing, which is the message of Galatians, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, 
to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a three-verse summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In these three verses, we have answers to three of the most profound questions that any of us could ever ask. Who are we? Who is Jesus? And why are we here? See, if you don't know who you are, then you'll never know who Jesus is. And if you don't know who Jesus is, then you'll never know why you're here. See, if you don't know who you are, you don't know who Jesus is, you don't know why you're here, you'll always be frustrated. You'll always be hitting a brick wall. You'll go from one guru to the next, from one diet to the next, from one teacher to the next, from one husband to the next, or wife to the next, or girlfriend to the next, or boyfriend to the next. You'll go from one thing to the other, trying to find that deep satisfaction, that longing for home that we all have as image bearers of God, but you'll never get there. You'll never arrive at home. You'll never find joy. You'll never find satisfaction. You'll never find peace, trying to find the meaning of life, trying to answer the big questions without Jesus is a fool's errand. Paul tried. I have tried. I think most people, if they're honest, have said that they have tried to find the meaning of life apart from Jesus. It doesn't work. So the first question is, who are we? According to verse 4, we are people who need to be delivered. We are people who need to be rescued. We are lost. We are hopeless. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are rebels who need God's grace. Now that is a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to accept. It's a hard thing to believe. We don't like that. It makes us uncomfortable because we feel pretty good about ourselves most days. I think I do. I think you probably do too. We're good people mostly. We know we're on the right side of history. We're enlightened. We we do the good things and the right things. How could Paul say these things? Last year, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University conducted a study. They called it the Worldview, American Worldview Inventory. Here's what they discovered. Here's a quote from the study. They write, huge proportions of people believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. Now, in terms of the general public, that's not a a, a radical or surprising discovery. I found that most people believe that they are basically good, that most people believe that they don't really need Jesus to get into heaven. Maybe Jesus is a good teacher or a moral example, but he's not absolutely essential, so that's not surprising. But here's what is surprising. 46% of Pentecostals believe that. 44% of mainline Protestants believe that. 41% of evangelicals believe that. And 70% of Roman Catholics believe that. Now, we don't know uh, how many Presbyterians believe that because they only asked one Presbyterian, and he said, get off my lawn, you know, so... uh, (laughs) Hopefully more than half of us believe in Jesus, but uh, based on the numbers, it's not very promising. 
Pastor Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite Presbyterians, observes the average person in the street believes that a Christian is someone who follows Christ's teaching and example. But Paul implies in verse 4, that's impossible. After all, you don't rescue people unless they're in a lost state and a helpless condition. In other words, if you encounter someone who's drowning in the Gulf of Mexico, you don't throw them a book about swimming. You throw them a rope. You throw them a life preserver. You jump into the water with them and you drag them to safety. That's what Jesus did for us. He came to save sinners. He came to deliver us because we can't deliver ourselves. He came to rescue us because we can't rescue ourselves. That's why it's called grace. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. We need to be rescued. That's who we are. So, who is Jesus? He's the rescuer. He's the one who jumps in the water. He's the one who gives us grace, grace that is greater than our sins. How did he do it? Well, according to verse 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins. On the cross, Jesus gave himself for us. He died for us. He died in our place as our substitute. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. Jesus substituted his life, his glory, his perfection for our sin, our death, our imperfection. And because he did, we have atonement, literally, at one meant with God. We are reconciled to Jesus through his death on the cross. In other words, he died the death that we deserve to die in order that we might live the life that only Jesus deserves to live. Because of Jesus, we have all of God's love. Because of Jesus, we have all of God's joy. Because of Jesus, we have all of God's righteousness. Because of Jesus, we have all of God's peace. Because of Jesus, we have all of God's life. Because of Jesus, we have none of God's judgment. Because of Jesus, we have none of God's condemnation. That is the gospel. Because of Jesus, we have everlasting life. Because of Jesus, we have abundant life. If we believe in Jesus, our sins are forgiven forever. If you believe in Jesus, you will receive grace. But not only will you receive grace if you believe in Jesus, you will also receive peace. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. No more guilt, no more shame, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because of Jesus, we have the peace of God. Because of Jesus, we have inner peace. 
that sense of quiet contentment and and assurance that we have been adopted into God's family, that we have received all of God's grace, all of God's joy because of him. Because of Jesus, we have peace with other human beings. How do we end racism? How do we end sexism? How do we end violence? How do we end war? How do disparate people with different cultures and different backgrounds come together? Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And someday when Jesus comes again, the peace of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Someday the lion will lie down with the lamb. Someday we will beat our swords and our Glocks, and our Rugers, and our Smith and Wessons into plowshares. And man will not raise up against other man. The Lord Jesus Christ will give us peace that is greater than all we could ever ask or imagine. No more fighting, no more arguing, no more violence or riots or war. If that's who we are, and that's who Jesus is, then why are we here? Verse 5, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We were dead, and Jesus brought us back to life. We were lost, and Jesus found us. We were desperate, and Jesus gave us his peace. And so, as God's people, our one purpose in life, the reason that we are here, the reason we exist on this earth, is to glorify Him, to make much of Him, to celebrate Him, to point other people to Him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the catechism of our church, puts it this way, very memorably, man's chief end, the reason why we're here, man's chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We glorify God by worshiping Him. We glorify God by praising Him. We glorify God by trying to make this world a better place. We glorify God by loving and serving our neighbors. We glorify God by telling everyone the good news that Jesus is the King And the kingdom of God is beautiful and glorious. There's forgiveness and hope in him. Sometimes we all need a gospel reset. We need that as individuals. I think we sometimes need that as a church. We need a messenger like the Apostle Paul. A man who once was lost and now is found. We need a message like the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need grace and peace. How do we get that? How does that gospel reality, something that Jesus did, come alive in our hearts? 
Well, Paul tells us in the very last word. Did you see it? Amen. When you say amen, you're saying, I believe. I agree. All that Jesus has done is for me. All that Jesus says about me is true. All that Jesus says about himself is true. All that Jesus says about finding the meaning of life is absolutely true. Amen, I believe. Do you? Let's go to God in prayer.